You're listening to B2B Revenue Acceleration, a podcast dedicated to helping software executives stay on the cutting edge of sales and marketing in their industry. Let's get into the show. This podcast is sponsored by Gong. Gong empowers your entire go-to-market organization by operationalizing your most valuable asset, your customer interactions. Transform your organization into a revenue machine by unlocking reality and helping your people reach their full potential. Get started now at gong.io. Hi, welcome to B2B Revenue Acceleration. My name is Aurélien Moutier, and I'm here today with Matt Dixon, co-author of The Challenger Sales and The Jolt Effect. How are you today, Matt? Hey, Ray. How are you doing? I'm doing well. Yeah. As I was saying to you in the preparation of this podcast, I'm very, very excited to have the conversation with you. I've been a big, 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 um, big fan of The Challenger Sales, and now you're coming with a new book, The Jolt Effect. Which is, which is really what we want to discuss today. And in the Jolt Effect, we speak about helping high performers overcome, overcome sorry, customer indecision. Mm-hmm. Okay, your latest book is uh, is designed to be a playbook for salespeople. Uh, we want to close the gap between customer intent and action. Yeah, and and in turn, of course, it will this this would help them to close more sales. Can you please explain the concept behind the book? but also touch maybe on the way you've been writing all this book, because I think there is a ton of data, a ton of research that goes into the writing. So I'd like you to give us a little bit of a background around all that and why the Jolt Effect. Yeah, sure. I'm happy to do it, Ray. Um, So maybe just to give a little bit of background on the research, because I think that's part of the story, actually. I think most of your listeners will remember the dark days of March of 2020 when, uh, you know, the pandemic, we were all in lockdown. And as we all know, something really interesting happened in the world of sales uh, right around that time, which is that sales uh, flipped to 100% uh, virtual overnight. Suddenly, you know, we yes, we always did some Zoom meetings, some Teams meetings, you know, things like that during our sales, our sales process. But suddenly, 100% activity sales interactions were happening uh, virtually. And so we decided that presented a, a golden opportunity for us as we're sales researchers and so we decided to partner with several dozen companies across industry. Uh, we collected two and a half million recorded sales calls. Um, and then we used a machine learning platform to study those. So it was a, it, we think it's the biggest study of actual sales conversations that has ever been done. And it's something that, you know, you mentioned the Challenger sale before, but, you know, this technology, Challenger sale came out in 2011. This technology didn't really exist back then. And so, so much has changed uh, in terms of uh, machine learning and GPU processing and these kinds of things that allow us to study big data sets like that. Now, the specific question we were looking, because this is a big data set, so we could go ask lots of questions and, and look for many things. But the specific thing we were looking for was uh, to try to understand what is it that causes a customer after they've gone through an entire sales process with a salesperson what is it that would cause a customer to um, uh, end up in no decision, you know, mm-hmm. to go radio silent, to ghost the salesperson, to disengage? And, you know, this happens a lot to salespeople. We found that anywhere between 40 and 60 percent of the average salesperson's total um, uh, pipeline will be lost to no decision. So these are customers, again, who eat up valuable time from us. They spend a lot of their own valuable time that of their organization, our team, all of the subject matter experts we bring to calls, things like that. They'll engage in proof of concept or kind of pilot trials and end up doing nothing. And so the question we were trying to get after, and this is a trend we, as we'll talk about, we think is getting worse over time. And so we looked at for the answer to that question, why is it that a customer would end up doing nothing? And then I think more importantly to, to the playbook point you made before, Ray, what is it that the best salespeople do differently? How do they avoid this kind of uh, outcome so they get their customer from intent to action, from saying, I want this, to I actually bought this? Uh, and, and that's really where um, uh, the kind of interesting stuff uh, came out uh, in the research. Makes perfect sense. It's very interesting. 2.2 million calls, that's, that's a fair few. Do, yeah. do you think the, the data, uh, because if, if it was post-March 2020, do you think the data is even more relevant because it was also some sort of, it was a pandemic. I know that the challenge ourselves in the challenge ourselves at the beginning yeah. in the preamble, you, you you guys are speaking about what makes the best sales guy into a downturn. Maybe we are, you know, lots of people are mentioning the big R recession at the moment. So do you yeah. think all that data does make even more sense in the current economic climate? 
Yeah, it's a really good question. I think um, I think you could argue that for sure. But, you know, it's interesting because I would say uh, really that, you know, March of 2020 and that kind of springtime, even into the summer, was a really tough time for companies. But the the economy came kind of roaring back. And so we continued to collect calls all through 2021, even into 2022. We continue to collect data even to this day, because what we find is there are a lot of companies who read the book and then they say, well, we record our sales calls. Can we send them to you guys? And can you tell us how indecisive are our customers and are our best are our salespeople using the techniques you talk about in the book? So we're continuing to add to the data set. And I don't, we don't see a lot of variation in the story from March of 2020 to today. But I, I do think that when I talk to companies today, you mentioned the R word, you know, every sales organization is worried about, um, you know, an economic downturn and they're worried about what it will mean for the sales organization for productivity. <clears throat> and so they are, I'm talking to companies. I, I was in San Francisco a few weeks ago for the launch of the book. And uh, I'll, I'll share with you one company, uh, CRO of a big tech company. I saw him on Monday uh, that week, and then and he told me he thinks their no decision loss rate was about 40, 45 percent. I yeah. saw him again on Friday, and he told me it had gone up to like 60 percent just in the past five days. And it's, it's because he's saying a lot of our customers are disengaging. They're, they're um, kicking the can down the road, so to speak. They're delaying their decisions, yeah. and they're trying to, you know, because cash is king and there's a lot of scrutiny right now. Now, I think uh, what I argue uh, typically um, I and mean, what we argue in the book is that the recession, economic downturn will cause a spike in no decision. Uh, it's just natural that's going to happen because there's so much scrutiny, even on pretty small purchase decisions on the on the customer side. Um, but I think that all of the things that drive indecision are actually on a secular trend to getting worse. And I, I think that's actually the bigger story. You know, when we wrote the Challenger sale, and you mentioned this, right? It was a book that we wrote about um, how to sell effectively in a downturn. But mm -hmm. I think what we learned was uh, that as we continued to collect data and we continued to study how this these changes in customer buying behavior, that it wasn't a story about selling in a downturn. It was a story about selling to customers who can learn on their own. You know, in awesome. a world where customers disintermediate you and they can do all their own research and then they call you very late and force you to compete on price, what kind of salesperson wins in that environment? So it ended up being about something much bigger. And I think the jolt effect is is uh, very similar in that regard. I think it's yeah. very relevant right now, but I think the macro trend is that customers are becoming more indecisive. And there's not a lot we can do in uh, B2B commerce to kind of put these genies back in the bottle or put the toothpaste back in the tube or whatever metaphor you want to use. These things are just getting worse and we have to deal with them. We were there building a pipeline for, for B2B tech clients. So that's probably not everybody in the world, but in 2008 and 2010 as well, when the bubble yeah. exploded. And the only way to go about it, I think, when you you, you, you think about it from a top of funnel perspective is just, to, pro, is just to, to have more pipeline. If you had a 3X or a 4X, you need to be working on a 5X or a CX. You need to speak to more people because no matter what you do, you'll have a deal that is at contract stage that get pulled out because someone needs to save some money. Yeah. But um, I want to come back on something that you, you, you mentioned. You used the term decision and i believe that it's open for suggestion so i'd, I'd like you to <laughs> define you know yeah, well, yeah. you know if you if you are if you are sitting on a on a monday morning in a sales call with all the sales guy and people say okay well they are just indecisive they're not really taking it they're pushing it to next quarter yeah yeah From my perspective that could mean a lot of things a lot of things so <laughs> so, so how was how do you define decision do you have categories within decision yeah. and and, and yeah. what what are they so it's a it's a really great question, and you put your finger on like really the crux of the research here. So it, maybe I could back up for just a little bit and yeah. um, explain. You know, we are very familiar with this phenomenon. You mentioned it before. That kind that movie in sales, we see it like every day. <laughs> the the customer wants to push the decision. They're delaying, or maybe it's the customer who start stops engaging with us uh, frequently. They kind of stop responding to our emails. They stop showing up for the Zoom call. They they start kind of ghosting us and disengaging. And, and then the forecast slips and it slips and it slips. And then eventually like the customer just stops replying to us and we mark it as closed, lost, no decision. And so the book is really about why does that happen and how do we how do we avoid that? And one of the things we found is that salespeople have been taught for a really long time 
that when your customer starts to show the sign of hesitation, you mentioned one before, you know, the customer saying, now is not the right time. It's going to push into the next quarter or next year even, that what they've been taught to do, or what they, I should say, what they've been taught to believe is the only reason that customer's not moving forward is because you failed to beat the status quo. So either the customer believes what they do today is good enough, or maybe they don't believe your solution is a compelling enough alternative, or maybe they don't feel the urgency to change, right? It's sure this, you know, Ray, this sounds like a better solution. I agree what we do today is terrible, but we have a lot of priorities and this fixing this is not one of our priorities. So it could be any of those reasons. And so what we tell salespeople to do is that when the customer starts to show those signs of cold feet and hesitation and they they start to disengage, you've got to go and dial up the FOMO, right? The fear of missing out. And so the way that salespeople have been taught to do this is, is a few different techniques. The first one is uh, very positive. So I go back to you, let's say, Ray, you're the customer. And I say, Ray, maybe you don't understand how awesome our platform is. Let me take you back into the demo environment and show you again how great it Did you see how many zeros were on that ROI projection? It's huge, you know? And I talk up the good, you know, the good story, all the great things that are going to happen if you move forward. Then when it, that doesn't compel you, what I do is I put away the carrot and I break out the stick. And so that becomes a little bit more the fear, uncertainty, and doubt. So Ray, you know, these problems, they're not going to solve themselves. And you told me how bad things are right now for your company and you're losing market share. And did I mention we work with all of your competitors and boy, they're seeing massive gains and you guys are going to be left behind. And I hate for that to happen for you. So what I'm trying to do is create kind of the burning platform that compels you to move yeah. forward, to help you realize that there's a cost from doing nothing. And if those things don't work, what I do is I usually hang hand out like a or dangle a 10% discount, you know, for the sort of expiring carrot, if you will, or disappearing carrot. So here is uh, a discount. Here is a an implementation window or a delivery window. And if you don't sign up now, I can't give that to you. Um, you know, it's only good right now. And so those are the techniques that the these FOMO techniques that salespeople have been taught to use. But what we found was that for customers who have already stated their intent to move forward that those approaches actually backfire more often than they work out. 84% probability in those situations, the customer will uh, will end up doing nothing. So we actually make it worse, not better. And it was kind of surprising to us to find that because again, these are the techniques that have been handed down from sales leaders to sales managers to salespeople for forever, really, for yeah. 50, 60 years now. We even talk about this in the challenger sale. We talk about how challengers are really good at breaking the pull of the status quo, breaking the grip that the status quo has on the customer. Um, they're they're really good at showing the customer the pain of same and that it's worse than the pain of change. You know, you cannot afford to do nothing. That's a hallmark of of being a challenger. But it so it was surprising to us to see this technique backfired until we actually dug into the data and here's what we found. We found that there's actually two reasons that a deal could end up being lost to no decision. One of them is because of uh, uh, the status quo. The customer mm-hmm. prefers the status quo, or maybe they think the status quo is not great, but it's good enough, right? Or I don't believe your solution is a compelling enough alternative. Any of those reasons, those are status quo reasons. But there's an entire second category, which is about indecision, which is different from the status quo. And you mentioned this before, Ray, but indecision is not that I prefer the status quo, it's that I'm quite literally unwilling or unable to make a decision on moving forward. Now, I'll give you a little bit more detail here. There are three things that cause customers to become indecisive. The first one is they don't know what to pick. So in sales, we love putting options and and different configurations. Too much. We put all this stuff because it feels good, right? It feels good to tell our customer, we can do all this stuff. Look at all the partner integrations. Look at the look at the roadmap. Look at all the bells and whistles. But and you customer- have also, coming back to a challenge, I'll say one more time, yeah. you also have something in there, I think, with giving three choices maximum to people. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Or, or even <laughs> right. two, I believe. Like, you know, yeah. um, because yeah, if you yeah, give yeah. too many, people just get confused and they make no decision. Well, it's too in, much in, to pick from. Be- because in a world where everything looks good, the customer worry what they're worried about is this going from a conversation and a concept to a proposal that requires deciding not just what I'm going to buy, but what am I going to take out of the shopping cart? What am I not going to buy? And those are hard decisions for people when everything looks equally attractive. Yeah. And so they get that's called a valuation problem. This is the customer looking at lots of options and saying, I don't want to make a mistake and pick the wrong one. Mm. The second source of um, indecision is a lack of information. 
So this is where the customer feels like they've not done enough research or enough homework. They feel like it's the next white paper that they read that will have all the answers, you know, and tell them how to be a smart customer. And then the third source of indecision is what we call outcome uncertainty. Outcome uncertainty is um, uh, about the customer's fear that they won't realize the benefits from the purchase. So they won't realize the ROI. They won't realize the cost savings, the risk mitigation, whatever you're projecting. And it might not, they're not even blaming you. They're in some ways blaming themselves and their own company, but it's they're feeling like, I don't actually know if I'm going to get, we're going to get what we're paying for here. Now, what's so interesting about that is that you could easily have a customer, it turns out often do have customers who say, Ray, I, the status quo is terrible. We want to do business with you. We want to move forward with your solution, but I don't know what configuration to pick. I don't know if I've done enough research to, to really, because it's a big purchase, big decision. I'm going to buy this stuff once in my entire career. I don't want to make a mistake. And number three, do I have any assurance? Have you given me any guarantee that we're going to see the returns that you're projecting? Or am I going to be left holding the bag? And so what it tells us is the big the big story here is that overcoming into or, or getting customers to avoid those no decision losses, to, to avoid the wasteland of no decision, which is a waste of the customer's time, is a waste of our time in sales. It's less about dialing up the FOMO and it's actually more about dialing down the FOMU. FOMU is the fear of messing up. Have I picked the right thing? Have I done enough homework? Do I have any assurance of success? So we've got to get the customer comfortable that they've made a great choice, that they're talking to a subject matter expert, a great salesperson who's going to guide them to a great decision. They don't need to be an expert. We can be the expert for them. And then lastly, we've given them a safety net. You know, we've we've shown them that we're going to have their back. They're going to see. They're not going to look like a fool. They're going to look like a hero. And, you know, in today's environment, especially in this this current uh, economic environment we're in right now where there's so much scrutiny, let's think about it for a moment. At the end of the day, the customer doesn't really care so much about uh, losing a 10% discount window. What they really care about is losing their job. That's actually much more important to them, right? And so we've got to deal with that. It doesn't mean that we have to stop beating the status quo. We have to do that. That has to happen. It has to happen very early in the sale. If the customer doesn't believe there's any benefit of moving forward, you're not going to sell anything. But yeah. once they stop caring about the status quo, then what we have to deal with is their own indecision uh, to get them to move forward. It makes perfect sense. I mean, it particularly depends on the type of companies you would be. But mm-hmm. let's say for, for us, a good uh, in our ICP, we've got a fair amount of stage A, B, C companies. Yeah. So, you know, companies where one round, two rounds or three rounds of investments. And of course, we've got some very big one, big names stuff that you probably use every day. Everybody yep. in the world pretty much use every day. And buying from a big vendor, you almost have a fair few of those boxes that are ticked. But when you are buying to a kind of newish vendor and it's software, so it's, it's kind of non-tangible. You can't touch it. You can't try it. It's not like a box that they can send you and you plug it. If you like yep. it, you keep it. You don't like it, you send it back. <laughs> and, you know, Listening to you, I'm kind of thinking, God, have we created that fear? Yeah. Have we created that fear because we've been promising and under-delivering? Mm. Have we created that sort of fears of perfection? Mm. And I guess that's kind of leading me to my question to you, which is, all right, so so we know about the kind of what to do with the FOMU, and I like that. I'm going to use that. I'm going to steal that from, well, not steal it. I'm going to borrow it. <laughs> borrow away. Go ahead. <laughs> yeah, you mentioned that. I'm just going to put a little trademark next to it. But... <laughs> What are what are the other advice that you yeah. would give to the to the to the to the top sales guys out there? What would be the thing that you would suggest that they change yeah. from a more in a more like day to day perspective? Because at the end of the day, to me, it sounds like you know being quite honest about things, potentially being a bit consultative in the sales process, mm-hmm. and say, look, we've got all those options, and you're it's you're gonna get crazy at them. But I've I've, I've understood what you've done. I worked with your team, and I think you should go for that. Yep. which is the best configuration for you. That's kind of an example, but how, what, what would be the practical advice that you would give to the, the, the salespeople listening to us today? Yeah, and you're right. Without, you know, it's got to be, even the concept of don't dial up the FOMO, dial, the FOMO, dial down the FOMO is only of limited help, I think. What you've got to do is distill it into a playbook. So that's what we've tried to do with uh, the JOLT effect. So JOLT is an acronym. So yep. it stands for four behaviors that together we think comprise a playbook for dealing with customer indecision. So I walk through them quickly and we can go back and discuss. But the first first one is uh, J is judging the level of indecision. So 
Uh, indecision is one of these things that we actually found in our research, um, almost 90% of opportunities across two and a half million sales calls, almost 90% had customers with medium or high levels of indecision. There are very few decisive customers. They Now, every customer thinks they're very decisive. And if you ask them, they would all raise their hand and say, oh, yes, Ray, I'm a very decisive executive. I'm very, But they're not, actually. It turns out they get very concerned of this fear of failure comes to consume them. But how do you get something that can be kind of personal, maybe even embarrassing? How do you get it on the table so that you can have a conversation about it? And so the J is all about what should we be looking for? Uh, the sources of indecision? Are there things going on in the company that might amplify this indecision? What about this individual I'm working with? Are they individually or personally indecisive by nature? And then we got to understand, again, how do we elicit it? How do we get it on the table so that we can have a conversation about it? Because that does a few things for us. One, it tells us what's the playbook we need to have uh, to get the customer across the finish line. Two, how do we forecast this opportunity? And three, in some cases, should we disqualify this opportunity? Or is this is this customer too indecisive? Are they too far gone? Is it a waste of our time? These are really important questions for the salesperson. Yeah. So that's the J, judging the level of indecision. Now, you already talked about the O a little bit, which is offering your recommendation. So, you know, Ray, you mentioned one of the techniques we talk about in the book. Offering lots of options to our customers is great, especially great above the funnel, you know, in marketing, um, at the trade show. We love to paint a big picture of what's possible, but at some point we've got to narrow up the considerations that if if everything looks equally good, then nothing looks, you know what looks best to the customer? Doing nothing. And so what we need to do in sales is chalk the field and kind of narrow up the pitch, if you will, and go down from a thousand options down to maybe three configurations and then put our personal recommendation on one of them. Say, this is the one, Ray, I would go with, given your um, your use case, given your situation, other customers like you really get a lot of value here. It's the analogy I would use, uh, Ray, is it's like when you go to a restaurant and you sit down and you see 20 entrees on the, the menu and they all look wonderful. And you ask the waiter or waitress, what do you recommend? And they say, well, Ray, what are you in the mood to eat today? Well, that's very unhelpful. <laughs> what we'd rather do have a waiter or waitress do is say, Ray, this is the best dish we, uh, this is my favorite. If you're in the mood for something a bit lighter, I also like this one. But look, Everything we make here is great. You can't make a bad decision. Like that instills some confidence because what happens there is I shift the blame of a bad choice for me onto you. Because if I don't like it, it's partly your fault, right? Um, and that's what best salespeople will do. They'll make that that firm and personal recommendation. The L is all about limiting the exploration. So we know customers will always feel like they haven't done enough homework. And the danger there. There's a real danger for salespeople here because when the customer is asking for more, more reference calls, um, more demos, more information, more white papers, more webinar recordings, want to read more Gartner Magic Quadrant reports, whatever it is, it feels like the customer is making progress because they're engaged in learning. They're engaged and they're moving towards the finish line, right? And so it gives us something we can put in the CRM system. Yes, like I sent them the white paper. Yes, I set up another, another demo. I set up another reference call. But the problem is high performers realize that beyond a certain point, those customers are just going to engage in analysis paralysis, right? They're doing research for research's sake, but it's not getting them any closer to the finish line. And so they need to shift the dynamic from you as a customer trying to be an expert to you trusting me as your expert. Now, there's a lot that goes into that. And, and I think of all the skills, I actually think this one's the hardest one for salespeople because what it requires us to do is two things. This is an overused term in sales, but we've got to be a trusted advisor. So we got to build, we got to bridge the trust gap that naturally exists between customers and salespeople. And we found specific techniques that salespeople use to do that. And the second thing is we've got to demonstrate to the customer that we are an expert. You know, and, and the reaction, especially in tech today, I think is for salespeople to show up with, you know, we like to say the clown car of experts, you know, the, the product people, the engineers, the everybody joins the call. And then the salesperson just kind of backs out of the way and hands the, the microphone yeah. to their colleagues. But best salespeople know that that's a dangerous thing to do because the customer then stops perceiving you as an expert. You are just a glorified admin. Like your only yeah. value is getting the smart people on the phone who really know the product. So you've got to develop that expertise and demonstrate it. And then the, um, the T is taking risk off the table. So we know that 
you know, in the final analysis, the customer will get very nervous that they may not get the returns that you are projecting uh, from the purchase. And so how do we show them? What are the things we can do? Everything from in a simple, in simple businesses, prorated refunds, in more complex businesses using professional services or creative contract structuring, pulling customer success forward into the sales process. What are the things we can do that give the customer the confidence that they are going to get what they're paying for? They're going to see the benefits and actually you're probably going to overperform. So again, they'll look not like a fool, but like a hero in their organization. So that is what that is the jolt effect is those four behaviors. And we like it because it's memorable, but it also it speaks to what's happening here. Our customers stuck. They're stuck in their own indecision. We're trying to jolt them toward yeah. a decision, right? That's super interesting. I, I took lots of notes, but um, thinking a lot about cases. In fact, I was writing, when you say uh, limiting the exploration, so maybe you should bring some experts to the table. So maybe yeah. I should ask a question around that. You just <laughs> read it straight after and beautifully, which was fantastic. No, I, well, I, but you I, know, it's Ray, it's a good question though, because I what it, you, this is hard because people on the listening to the show, I, what we don't want them to assume is they can't bring anybody to help. I mean, the last thing you want to do in sales is fake it. And if you don't know the answer to a question, if you're not deep, a deep enough expert, you need to bring your product person, your engineer, your you know, infosec person, whoever it is, you need yeah. to bring them to the table. But there's a, a specific way that we found high performers doing it. So we collected data from lots of companies. In the same company, uh, what we found was an average performer. So I'll use an example of a tech company that participated in the research. Average performers would bring all of these experts, and then they would say something like, I know you had a question about the product. Ray is our head of product. Ray, take it away. And and they would just hand over the call to, to the product person. And the product person would, because they want to help, they would take the entire conversation. They would just, mm -hmm. it was almost like the salesperson wasn't there and they didn't jump into the very end saying, oh, so should we set up a next call? Like, what's the next step? And, you know, but again, what that's telling the customer is that you are no more than a glorified MC or an admin here. Your your value is just that you got Ray, the head of product, on the call. But that's also a customer who perceives the salesperson as not being much smarter than they are about this big decision. And so that's a customer who will want to do their own research to instill, to build up their own confidence. What high performers did, it didn't mean they never asked for help, but what they would do is they would sit down with you, Ray, head of product in advance. They would carefully orchestrate the call. And I would have said something like, Ray, I've got the, the customer has this really specific question. Can we just role play a little bit of what your answer would be? And can you try to keep it to no more than like seven minutes? And what I'd like to do is then tell the customer you have to jump to another call so that you can leave. And then they come back to me because I don't want them going to you. I want them coming to me. If they don't see me as an expert, then it damages my credibility in the eyes of the customer. So again, it's the way that you do it. It's not whether or not you should use those experts. By the way, as a side point, we also found that high performers in the same companies were much more likely to do their own demos uh, yeah. rather than handing it off to a solutions engineer. Yeah, there is a lot of that. There is a lot of, uh, and I don't know if it's kind of the automation of the sales process, trying yeah. to look like Salesforce or service now, and you know we'll have a step and we go to next step and next step, and you don't want a demo, well, you're going to get a demo anyway. Because that's, that's the next step of the process. That's a step in the process, yeah. When sometimes we should actually speak to the clients and 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 maybe you know do it do it in another way. Um. So so I think I think for the exploration, it's kind of really interesting because you you also have multi persona sales cycles and and as a salesperson, of course, you should not be expected to 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 handle a complete uh technical conversation. You know, you may have to bring some people that are a bit better at that. But we've seen the polar opposite also of salespeople who just sit back, open the laptop, put the presentation, their SE, their system engineer will do the presentation. And then at the end, say, okay, do you like it? Do you want some? Yeah. And, and it's yeah. like, wow. <laughs> you know, the first meeting where you don't even speak. You, you, yeah, yeah. It's not like you even pick up the slides yeah. you will present. You just go through the same motion all the time. There is there's literally no effort. So there is a big gap there. And I think that's not even an average performer here. We're probably at the bottom of the barrel. Yeah. Um, coming yeah. back to, to the judging the level of indecision, mm -hmm. that could be open to interpretation. And you would have the very cynical sales rep that would say, now, you know, it's not moving. You know, I'm, uh, I'm, I'm always in a bad mood. But the lone wolf, maybe, you know, kind of <laughs> yeah, don't yeah. know too much. So they would yeah. they would use that. And then you would have the, the, the very enthusiastic sales guy mm. wagging their tails and just saying, no, no, no. So how do you judge that? Like, is there is yeah. there a method to judge because it's it's quite complex in a yes. way. I yes. understand what you are saying. What 
I, I guess from my perspective, at scale with a team of 10 people, uh -huh. would you have the same level? Would you have the same scorecards? Yeah. So a uh, great question. I think that, uh, again, this one is a, this is a tricky one too, uh, because these are not things that customers are comfortable talking about. You know, they're very unlikely to admit that, you know, they have, they have trouble like, Hey, Ray, when I go to a restaurant with lots of, I leave hungry because I don't know what to order or Friday night. I don't know what movie to watch with my family. Like I don't, I'm very bad at making decisions. Customers don't say these things, but we know that they struggle with indecision. They struggle with this fear of failure. So how do we get it on the table? Um, we found that there's there are two techniques. One of them is is kind of obvious. Here's here's the metaphor I'd use, Ray, is that I might think of it like um, you as a salesperson are a uh, a surface ship. Like I think of a warship on the surface of the ocean, and you know there's a submarine down there. The submarine is the customer indecision, and there's two ways to find that submarine. The first one is uh, just through listening. This is called passive sonar, right? So we just listen for the submarine making noise. So that's obviously about what are the things in a sales conversation that become indicators of indecision that we can then just tune our listening for, right? Really active listening uh, techniques. But if the submarine is very silent, and oftentimes it'll be hard to discern, is this customer indecisive or not? What, what service ships do is they they engage in active sonar. So they send out a ping, literally a, a ping, and, it, and they listen for the echo back from the object. And that tells them there is a submarine down here because I got the reflection. Now, if what we're trying to do is get a reflection back, that is different in sales. That technique is different from uh, diagnose, a diagnostic question. You know, what's keeping you up at night? What are you trying to accomplish? <clears throat> Asking the customer, are you indecisive? Do you struggle with indecision? Probably not a good technique. It's also different from a customer verifier. By the way, diagnostic questions are very important in sales. We know that. Customer verifiers are also very important, which are, for example, me saying to you, Ray, are we ready to send this on to legal for review? Are we ready to get finance and procurement involved uh, and work through the budgeting process? That, that tells us that the customer is moving along with us. Our sales process is mapping to their buying process, and that's a very important technique. The technique we want to use here, though, is much more like that ping for a submarine and listening for the echo back. So what does that sound like? Well, what we found in, in the analysis of the two and a half million calls is high performers would proactively articulate what they think is bothering the customer. And they do it in a specific way to make it seem like it's okay. So, Ray, I, you know, I'm gauging from your reaction there that maybe you're a little bit concerned about are your employees actually going to use the platform or, or are you buying too much? You don't, nobody can afford, especially in this environment for software to go unused. And just, just to let you know, a lot of our customers worry about the same thing. So I don't know if that's true for you, but if it is, I'd love to get that on the table so we can talk about it. And I can tell you how our, what our approach is and how it's different here to make sure that people get value, make sure they use the platform and that you actually see the benefits. So what happens in that moment is I've articulated a fear that you think you're you're going to buy software or a platform that nobody uses. And now what I'm looking for is for you to articulate back, yeah, that actually that is a big concern right now, especially because there's so much scrutiny on every single purchase. Like I cannot buy a million dollars of software and have nobody use it. Like that, I'll lose my job, you know? Or for the customer to say, no, that that's actually, Ray, that's not our concern. Our concern is actually the integration with this other part of our tech stack. I'm not sure you guys have never done that before. And it, what if it goes sideways? Because if that doesn't work, this whole thing is, so it gets it on the table. So now we can have a conversation about it. It, it sounds common sense that you mentioned it. You know, it. It's really about almost being very transparent about what could be the blockers. I mean, I remember yeah. one, of my, one of my initial sales conversations, slightly different than, uh, than, than what we, we're discussing about, but I don't know, for some reason, it's coming into the, the back of my mind. I was speaking to a prospect and the solution that we were pushing was a challenger of a very, very big vendor. Okay. And technically on paper, we beat them. We quicker, faster, better, you know, all the things that you don't speak to the prospect about, yep. but the solution is better. The technical people like it. You get into RFPs because you've got a good stuff. You've got a very good product. It's also a very big name of a company. But let's say that what they are doing on, in that specific instance is not their core business. That's what not what they are known for. They just happen to also have a very good solution for that part of the business. Okay, and and literally, I was I was digging with a prospect as to why, and I was doing exactly that. I was like, look, it could be that that you are concerned about, or your teams are concerned about. So yeah. what I was doing with that guy it was more about it's not you, but it could be the people around you. Mm -hmm. 
which yeah. I think is also kind of helping because people may say, yeah, well, you know what? My CFO is not comfortable with that. Yeah. Actually, they are, may not be themselves, but they just, they don't want to tell you that they are not because you have a, a bit of a relationship with them. So using the the, the, the people around and probably after 10, 15 minutes of conversation, I think the guy I was speaking to got fed up with me and said, look, this is very simple. I've got two choices. I can either yeah. buy the Ferrari yeah. and if the Ferrari breaks down, my wife will never tell me off because if I would have bought the BMW, the yeah. BMW would have broken down before. So what I'm doing, <laughs> I'm buying an insurance here. My problem yeah, yeah. is that I don't want to be exposed. And when they tell you, I say, oh God, so we had no chance here. Yeah. And technically, yeah. you knew that you had no chance, but they were entertaining the conversation. Mm-hmm. And it kind of feels, obviously it's a bit frustrating when you get to that point, but it also feels good because you kind of cut the chase in a way. That's right. Um, what would be more frustrating is that you spend another six months thinking you have a chance when when actually you, you've you saved yourself all that time. So you're right, in the moment, it's very painful. But in retrospect, it's like, boy, I'm so glad I didn't waste my time with that opportunity. I, you mentioned something, Ray, that I think is another powerful technique. When we talk about this limiting the exploration or even judging indecision, the, this, tech, this specific thing we found can be quite useful. Uh, and that is look what looking for signs of implicit non-acceptance in the way customers respond. So um, for instance, if you raise an objection and I address that objection, then I said, Ray, how did how did I do? Did I address your concern? And what we found is this is really interesting. There's actually a big difference between the customer saying yes and the customer saying, I guess so. Yeah, sort of. Um, now, if you're an average salesperson, those two things are identical and you just keep pitching, right? You keep going with your sales conversation. What high performers would do is they would stop the conversation. They would say, you know, Ray, I don't want to read too much into this, but based on your response, I, maybe I didn't resolve your question. Or perhaps there's another concern that you're worried about. And that's okay because there's other customers like you, they get pretty concerned about this stuff too. So I'd love to have a conversation. And, and again, maybe maybe you're fine, but let's let's have a conversation about it. Um, the other thing we found, and you mentioned this before too, is they would proactively suggest objections that the customer hadn't even articulated. So, uh, you know, answering one question, but then saying, you know, other customers like you, they they actually also worry about this. I don't know if that's true for you, but I thought maybe let's get it on the table so we can talk about it. Yeah. And that does a couple of things. Um, it builds a lot of trust, of course. Um, you're not trying to hide the dirty laundry. You're getting it all on the table, but also it teaches your customer, ah, this person has been there before. They've done. They've sold this solution to other customers like me. They know what's going on in my head. They know what all the pitfalls, and I feel like I'm working with a a you know not just an, an advisor but a trusted advisor who's going to lead me to the right decision. Yeah, and it's kind of leading me to the 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 you know offering recommendation, which is the O. That's relatively for me at least. It sounds relatively straightforward. I mean, yeah. I've uh, been doing what I've been doing for a lot of time. I kind of, you know, it's, it's easy when you've got a lot of experience. It's probably much more difficult when you are three months in a new job. What would be the advice that you give to salespeople around that? Because again, could, yeah. should you go to your sales director, your customer success team, involve them early and say, look, this is this is what the prospect look like. This is what we've been discussing. This is what the, the, ch- the challenges I believe they are facing. I'm trying to package something. I would like to come up with one or two recommendations for yeah. them. Yeah. So I, I think you're right. It for experienced salespeople, they just they kind of do this in their sleep. Like they they know this customer they should buy this, that customer they should buy that, and and they know what the different options are and they can kind of do it naturally. And that comes from experience. For a newer salesperson who maybe doesn't have that experience, this is where the organization can be quite um supportive, right? So um if we know in our company that certain ICPs or certain use cases that there are specific customer types there's a specific configuration that is best for those different customers. And we can configure that within a range of options. So it's not just one choice or one size fits all, but you could do this one, or here's a heavier one and a slightly lighter one. Um, and we give people a sense of options, not everything, but maybe three options, and we steer them to the one in the middle. Um, that's something that product uh, can do, uh, that that the sales leadership team can uh, build and then train new salespeople to get good at using so that it doesn't require them to develop 10 years of experience so they can make those recommendations. It's also something, and we, we talk about this a lot, that you know we as tenured salespeople can be a resource to those newer salespeople and sharing that perspective. A lot of what helps our, our newer in career and, and less tenured salespeople move down the learning curve more quickly is their ability to tap into the knowledge 
of all the more experienced salespeople on the team. So, but again, it's something we can uh, invest in at the organizational level. So that O is, yes, it's an individual skill, but it's also kind of an organizational capability. Have you documented those recommendations and then trained people around them and then adapted them as the product evolves and as as needs and requirements evolve in the marketplace? Yeah. And and the T, finally, I just, just want to yeah. dig into a little bit each of them because I find, I find the concept super interesting, of course. I mean, there's a whole book around it, 2.2 million calls have been listened right. to. So taking the risk off the table. So, so so what does that mean? Does that mean that you, is kind of a business model? It's a couple of things. One is I would, so the thing about taking the risk off the table, Ray, is it, it, you know, it often comes up very late. So it ends up being the, re, like I, I've said the, oftentimes, you know, the, the space between the customer's pen and the contract is filled with outcome uncertainty. Am I really going to get the benefits that I've been promised? And especially right now, it's it's so much easier to delay the decision and say, let's do let's talk again in 24 months. Now is not the right time because people are worried about looking bad, but they're worried about losing their jobs, you know, uh, and spending a lot of their company's money on a solution that doesn't work out. So it, we found uh, a range of of techniques. It, but here's what I would say is even though it ends up coming up late, um, it, the seeds of outcome uncertainty are often planted earlier in the sale. And the way this happens is by salespeople creating, um, uh, if you will, oversetting expectations mm-hmm. and increasing the risk the customer perceives that they're never going to see the this yeah. ROI. They're never going to see this benefit. So we've got to be really careful. Like, yes, on the website, we love those reference stories and those case studies and success stories about like the customer who got the thousand X ROI, like that looks really cool, but let's not use that as the basis for the business case. Let's tell the customer, you know what? I want to build the business case around this expectation. I'm also confident we're going to overperform, but what I don't want to do is set the the bar so high that it puts a lot of pressure on you to achieve outcomes that we need to have everything go right in order to achieve. Yeah. Trust me. Like and so so best salespeople are good at saying those expectations properly. And then when it it comes down to uh, that outcome uncertainty and and de-risking the sale, there's lots of techniques we saw. So one, obviously in more transactional sales Prorated refunds, opt-out clauses, things like that. In more complex B2B sales, we don't tend to see that. But here's what we do see. We see, we see um, salespeople using creative contract structuring. Uh, we see them using professional services. Here's one example. A company who participated in, in the research, a SaaS company, their best salespeople sell like 10 times as much professional services with every deal. Now, what's interesting about it is not that they just sell sell more professional services, it's the way they position this this professional services. What they will do in the calls is say, you know, Ray, I I know you have a little bit of concern. You want to do this yourself, and that's one of the great things about our platform. You can roll it out yourself. We've got tons of videos, lots of enablement support. We've got your back. You can do this on your own. However, I don't want to see any slippage here. So what I'd like to do is add a a, a bundle of like a hundred or two hundred professional services hours. That way, if anything goes wrong, we've got the A team here and they can swarm the problem, get you back on track. So they positioned it as an insurance policy. Now, they didn't give it away for free. They sold it, but they used it as an insurance policy for the customer. And the customer saying, you know what? I like that idea because if we don't use the hours, we'll roll them into the renewal. But then I at least know somebody's got my back. It's a safety net kind of option. Uh, I think for that part of it, I mean, obviously, Taking risk off the table, as you mentioned, is in complex sales is much more than just a customer review. But one thing that I was thinking as you were speaking is that there is this platform like Clutch and G2 reviews yeah. as well, where you can have, and I think it's, it's kind of funny because if I'm buying something, right, and I want to buy something from you, Matt, the reference that I would ask is not to say, hey, Matt, can I speak to your happiest customer, please? Because I know that <laughs> I'm going to get nothing from that guy or that yeah. lady, and they're just going to tell me how great you are. Yeah. I don't know how much you want and dine them and all that sort of great stuff. What I would want to say, hey, Matt, could you put me in front of a customer of yours for which you failed mm. so we can discuss about how you are as an organization when you fail and how do you manage to get it back on track? Because I want to yeah. know when you are not at the top of your form, yeah. how you are. And people struggle. Like they oh, literally yeah. <laughs> struggle to give us references. And for us, we kind of make it almost automatic when someone gets to the reference. So, okay, I'm going to give you a client that were extremely unhappy, but then we managed to change things because we're not perfect, but we work honestly, right? Yeah. And sometimes we have a bad quarter and we've got to pick it up. But we, we try now to kind of get that done into the G2 review. So when people are reading them, you know, our three-star G2 review is actually quite a good review. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. But you know what you do? You're going to go on Amazon. You want to buy, I don't know, a mouse trap. 
you, I'm, I'm supposed that you're not an expert of mousetrap, Matt. Uh, but if you want to go and buy a mousetrap, you're probably going to look at, okay, what oh, are yeah. the reviews? You never read the top one. No, you, you always read the bad the ones. Because <laughs> you want to know what's wrong with them. Oh, yeah. Yeah, 100%. And, and I think, you know, that, that there is a real... It's actually important to build a strategy where you can get your clients to openly speak about what's right, what's wrong, and yeah. being very honest about those things, and almost creating a platform. And I was wondering, when you're speaking about this, could you create almost like a community of customers who face issues? Mm. And then we can speak about them, but who are in yeah. the open. Because really what you're talking about here in all those things is it's really about being honest with yourself, the sales process, the prospect, not yeah. trying to overpromise on the deliver. And not yeah. trying to kill each other, which is a big thing in sales, and it's difficult, particularly for the newly, sure. you know, the less experienced salespeople. We tend to want to hug the opportunity, and yeah. sometimes it's probably better to say, "Well, let's let's go," because you'll never make a decision. It, so um, you know, yeah, it's it's a really uh, I love the idea. You know, it, it reminds me we we talked about this a little bit earlier, but the reality I think for salespeople is they've got to realize that they are starting actually before they even say hello to the customer in a negative place. Because customers have feel like they've been burned in the past, they've been oversold. There's an information asymmetry between themselves and the salesperson. And sometimes that has not worked out well for the customer, again, because the salesperson only had them talk to the happiest reference clients, uh, clients only you know engineered the demo so it works perfectly, right? They don't show the things that don't work. They don't talk about the capabilities that are not ready for prime time. They certainly don't put you on the phone with customers who who you had failures with, right? Um, that's just not what we do in sales. We make it all look perfect. And so customers come into the sales conversation believing that. And so there are specific moments. One of them, I love that idea of, I want to have you talk to somebody where it actually didn't go very well, but I, it, but we got it back on track. But I, I'm going to put you on touch with them because I want you to understand what kind of co- organization we are. And we don't accept failure with our customers. We lean in hard and we get things back on track. And we, you know, even if it, it, it we're not perfect, I think, to your point. There's other moments too, like when the customer is saying, Hey, I, you know, I want this and I want that. And I want this other thing saying, you know what? I, I'd love to sell you that, but I actually don't think it's, it's good for your use case. I don't think you need the premium version. I think a basic version of our product would be fine. I don't think you need a thousand seat licenses. Let's actually start with 10 seat licenses. I know it's, I'd love to sell you the million dollar deal, but let's start with the 10 seat licenses. We can expand from there, but I know that way we'll get some victories and we'll show some success. We'll create a team of people who really love the platform and then they'll go tell everyone else. And then you look like a hero. If you buy a thousand right now, then there's gonna be a lot of pressure on you to get everyone using it immediately. And that's not usually what we see. Like yeah. those moments, even, even this is kind of extreme. We didn't find a lot of examples of this, but even moments early on in the sale where you're talking to the customer about you know what they're looking for and why they reach out to you saying, you know, based on what you're looking for, I, actually, that's not, we're not the best people in the market for that. We'd love to do business with you. We think we can really help you. But actually, there are some other companies who really specialize in what you're looking for. Um, and I would look there. Those are moments that really build that trust. And, and it teaches the customer in that moment, you are not here to oversell me. You are here to get me to a good decision. And whether yeah. that decision is buy from you, don't buy from you, you know, buy less than I think I, I need to buy, whatever it is, you, your only motivation as a salesperson is to get me as a customer to the best decision for me and for my organization. Last week, I was in the US and I was speaking to my own BDR, SDR team. So people who are at the top of the top of the funnel. And I sat down with them and I said, look, guys, you've got to stop trying to call people and book meeting with them. You know, it's, it's, it stinks of meeting when you call. You stink of meeting. The prospect <laughs> get that. They don't want to give you time. That's the, that's the most expensive currency they've got. Yeah, yeah. What I want you to do from now on is to stop trying to get meetings. I want you to focus on having fantastic conversation. Mm-hmm. I want you to feel good because you do something right. You want to help them. We genuinely want to do something. We have a good conversation. You focus on the process versus the results. Yeah. And it may take six months to come because they still need for a compelling event to happen. But trust me, if you have a good conversation with Matt today, Matt is hanging up the phone thinking, God, I wish my team could prospect people like that because yeah. I was kind of cool and then you kind of keep 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 in touch with him you may send him like a few things like maybe a podcast with with matt dixon or something like that and say hey listen to that so it was cool and made me think about you maybe in six months they'll pick up the phone and want to re-engage with you when they do that that engagement is solid the closing rate on those things is strong okay? yeah. yeah so that's kind of leading me to my last question because i appreciate we get to the end of the the show here um would you have any advice for, for those people who are the, the top of the funnel? So the, the SDR, BDR, how can they, 
what could be their contribution in the jolt effect? Yeah, so uh, it's a great question. I would, um, I just play back what you said. I think focusing less on the outcome, getting a meeting or getting a visit, yeah. and more on having great conversations. That's job one. And if we can, and if we can make it our goal not to schedule a visit, but rather to deliver value to the customer and have a good conversation, the visits will follow. Right. I think also, I what I would say is there is recognize that those signs of indecision uh, can be surfaced very, very early, even in the first attempt to schedule time with them and to engage them at the top of the funnel. Um, and so there's a lot of techniques, again, we talk about uh, around the J, the judging the indecision, that through active listening, through those pings and echoes that we can use to do a few really important things early on. Surface, is this an opportunity that I even want to schedule a you know, visit with? Like I might hit my number, but I'm going to send an AE or a salesperson to, on a wild goose chase. They're going to be chasing this garbage truck forever. There are things I can figure out early on that tell me whether this is worth engaging with or pursuing. Um, also, there are things I can do early on to, again, build that trust and build that, uh, that credibility that my goal as an SDR um, is not to get a meeting. My goal is to get you the information you need to to be a savvy business person and make the right decision for your company, even if the decision is not doing business with us, maybe buying from our competitor or yeah. just doing nothing, right? And so I like talking to executives like you because I find that they don't know a lot about these opportunities, about this technology, and I love to educate and provide some value, but I'm also very transparent around what we can and can't do, what this technology can and can't do. And in places where we are not the best fit for you, I will steer you in a different direction. So you know, uh, we'd love to have some time to talk to you about that. Like that's a, that's a different, that feels less like a sales conversation and more like I've actually got an advisor here as a sort of an outside consultant coming in to help me make a good choice for me and for my team. And it makes you feel good. It does. You know, forcing yeah. something down the throat of a prospect when you know it's not the right thing to do. Okay. You may be very, very money hungry, but you will never be able to sell to that person again. That's right. You know, and yeah. that's, 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 that's the thing. But, but, I want to thank you for two things. First of all, the time today and all your insights, super valuable. Love the yeah, conversation. Thank you, the second thing is the contribution to all the sales professional, because it's not just a challenge ourselves. We forget the challenge our customer yep. and all the other things that you've done. So thank you so much. Uh, and, and the fact that you're coming with actually a bit more of a scientific approach versus just, hey, you know what? I'm on a yacht <laughs> now. I've got a, a golden Rolex and this is the way I used to do it. So <laughs> all <do> right. stuff. <laughs> I, I, I think that, that that's massive for me. So I want to thank you for your contribution to our thank world you. of selling. Uh, and I think you really, all the things that you have come up with, with, with your co-author and with your research, is it's really about true values, mm -hmm. the true values of selling, which is kind of demystifying the, the bad guy, the you know, someone who can just speak and stuff like that, yeah. to actually yeah. someone who, the most successful one are honest to the point and don't try to be tricky. So So thank you for that. Now, and I'm pretty sure I know what the answer to that question is, but if I want everybody that has listened to this podcast to follow up by reading your new book, where is the best place to buy your book? Buy lots of places online, but if you're interested in learning more about the research and there's also some free tools as well as some enablement resources to help drive some of these jolt skills within a sales team. And, and if you're an individual sales person developing those by yourself, uh, go to jolteffect.com and there's everything you want to know about the book and the research and and how to continue that learning journey is all all on there. So, well, thanks again for your time today, May. It was Thank a you, great, Ray. great pleasure to have you on the show.